We're on to the last category, Tim. Good God. 1977. The last category. What's the one category we haven't talked about yet? Jazz fusion. Jazz fusion. Now, some people, that will strike horror into their very soul. Yeah. But we like jazz, don't we? We like music that's influenced by jazz. We like jazz. And we, we haven't talked a lot about jazz on on uh, on the podcast i think partly because it's difficult to talk about jazz in a way mm-hmm. i mean i'm not a player i can't play jazz i don't know what you know what they're doing a lot of the time i love it um and there's also a sense that with music that's predominantly instrumental you know you you don't have the lyrics to talk about you don't have that hook to kind of hang your discussion on but let's try because there are some great jazz records this year now we were talking last night after we finished recording uh, about your fate no the the famous german label ecm they they're so reliable ecm particularly mm-hmm. through the 70s almost any ecm record you buy you know it's going to be beautifully recorded brilliantly performed and no exception here this year we have some great ecm records we have an early pat metheny record the the fantastic american guitar player pat metheny watercolors i mean what can you say about pat metheny he's just just uh, a very unique player and uh, still going strong to this day it's a lovely record. The anomaly here might be Jan Garbrecht's Dis or D record from yeah. this year, D-I-S, because this is an interesting one, isn't it? This is Jan Garbrecht, the, the, the Norwegian saxophone player, playing against quite electronic-sounding textures, although I think they're all made with a wind harp. Is that right? Yes. Um, yes. Which is this kind of weird instrument that produces these monolithic kind of drones, very deep, very powerful, almost overpowering drones, which he then kind of improvises over the top of. And I think Ralph Towner also adds some some guitar. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of crossover because, yeah, Watercolors was Matheny's second album. The first one, if you remember, has Jaco Pistorius on. Okay. And this one, he's got Eberhard Weber. So you've got Eberhard Weber is working Watercolors. He's making his own album. He's also working with the Ralph Towner Solstice. Ralph Towner's also working with Jan Galbrecht. Jan Galbrecht is also in Solstice. Right. And we have an Eberhard Weber album from this And year. an Eberhard... Is it The Following Morning? Which, uh, we, it's like I was saying earlier, we were discussing this last night, and you kind of concluded that he was... Eberhard Weber was probably your favourite ECM artist of all. Yeah. What is it about him that makes him stand out for you? Well, on a, on a live basis, he was actually... He was as engaging and as funny as his music was glacial. Very unusual personality. So there was a great... Um, f- friction to a degree which was nice in the sense of this almost comedic figure then producing this glorious music and he used to do a lot of gigs in uh, the 80s in britain and 90s where he'd be improvising with his um, custom-made upright bass through loops mm. and it, it was lovely stuff um there's there's just a say you know I, I suppose i was very drawn to pastorius and i was very drawn to weber he's just one of my favorite instrumentalists of all time and there's a kind of um there's more of a grain in his music than you get in a lot of ecm i think ecm you know if any i think <laughs> dis or d as you say that's one album that also has a kind of grain because of that monolithic texture of the main instrument but a lot of ecm albums tend to be slightly antiseptic slightly clean so beautiful yeah and i think there's more of a grain more of a grit to weber's 
work. And he worked a lot with, with minimalism and loops, which were things I was always kind of drawn to as well. He was more, he, yes, he seemed like he had slightly more of a composer's instinct uh, yeah. as well as the improviser. So there's a lot of string arrangements on his records, yes. for example. I think you're right about ECM. One of the problems with ECM, the, the, the downside of ECM is, yes, you can buy almost any ECM record and know you're going to enjoy it. It's going to be beautifully recorded, impeccably played. There is a sense that it's sometimes a struggle to find the ones, the albums that kind of transcend the archetype and sound yes. like they're, they're more than just, oh, it's another nice ECM record. And part of that also is the artwork. I mean, it's incredible artwork, mm-hmm. but there's kind of uniformity across the catalogue in the way the albums are designed, the way they're presented, the way they're produced, the way they're played. And there are certain artists that don't seem to transcend that a lot of the time and just can just end up being like, Oh, it's a nice, pretty, ambient jazz record. Yeah. But there are some artists, and I think Eberhard Weber's one of them, where there seems to be a bit more rigour, and the album, the best of them certainly do transcend the ECM cliché. Keith Jarrett's records mm. quite often transcend the ECM sound, and some, Terry Ripdall, some of his mm. albums definitely transcend. Even though they still sound like ECM records, there's something about them that just gives them a little bit more character, a little bit more personality. Yeah. And, and to an extent, Pat Metheny as well, because of course he had yes. more of a homeland American influence that he brought to this very European label and in some ways you can understand why he was their first breakout artist well Keith Jarrett arguably was the first breakout artist with the Kong concert but then Matheny becomes stratospheric and signs to Geffen he does and I think that's partly because he actually had a little bit more of a pop melody sensibility I mean some of the melodies are so catchy and and you know come and almost took him over to that world of easy listening jazz but then the great thing about Matheny of course he would go off he would just as easily go off and make an album with Derek Bailey of pure avant-garde noise Bonnet Coleman didn't you work with him as well he did yeah so he's an incredibly eclectic and diverse musician but he was capable of, of fashioning this very accessible almost pop you know jazz records too but certainly during the ECM time he was still you know falling into line with the kind of ECM sound in a way but yeah I mean he's got enough of a personality to transcend that there's lots of artists that recorded for ECM that I find largely interchangeable Mm. because they just kind of fell into the ECM sound and didn't transcend it I mean it was a model of good taste and I think sometimes that models of good taste can become tedious yeah it it can become almost too too easy too easy listening background listening yeah but certainly the Eberhard Weber album from this year, the following morning, that's one of his one of his best records. It is. A, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous string record, arrangements. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, also this re- also this year we have. In fact, you mentioned in one of the earlier episodes how Weather Report kind of had their big crossover hit this mm-hmm. year. Heavy weather. I have to say, perhaps not not coincidentally, this is about the moment that I lose interest in Weather Report. I love the early records. Uh, I love the kind of luminous abstract qualities of of records like Mysterious Traveller and Sweet Nighter and the grooves and the and the open endedness of them. I mean, I prefer the early work just like you. Um, you know, again, that kind of amorphous post in a silent way approach that they initially had, and then when they get into the to the deep grooves of Sweet Nighter. Although I think my favourite album is Mysterious Traveller, actually. I mean, Sweet Nighter is very much a groove album in the way that On the Corner is a groove album mm. for Miles Davis. Whereas when it gets to Mysterious Traveller, this is when the compositions and perhaps his use of synthesizer, his use of sound, because like Vangelis, like Stevie Wonder, like Richard Barbieri, like Brian Eno, Zavinol is one of those 
artists where you recognize him with a single chord mm. as much because of the sound his mm. treatments of synths again he's got equipment that everybody in the world has access to if you've got the money in the studio mm. but he uses them so distinctively mm. um and I, and I love that album for that but I, i've probably got more time for heavy weather than you partly because weather report were always my favorite of the of the fusion bands really i suppose wandishi Herbie Hancock was the other one. But I really liked Weather Report partly because there was a real sense of space. I and mean, I loved Pastorius, you know, he got involved mm. in the band. But they're not one of the showboating fusion bands. There aren't endless guitar solos, partly because there wasn't a guitarist, you know. Um, it's much more reliant on texture, groove, space, mm. and melody. And obviously, melody is to the fore on Heavy Weather. It is a pop jazz album and it probably I think I hate what it spawned more than I hate it yeah I know what you mean I know what you mean I don't I don't really like pop jazz I mean the, the whole kind of see, move move towards CTI style jazz yeah starting in the mid 70s when people like Deodato were having big hits you know with sort of jazz versions of classical pieces or whatever that that I, I do hear that when I listen to Heavy Weather I hear that trend in that music and I think a lot of those jazz musicians were probably listening to things like Herbie Hancock's Headhunters and, and some of the CTI, and I love Headhunters, mm. by the way, and see some of the CTI jazz records and saying, oh, we, we, you know, we can have a piece of that. We, yeah. You know, we can have a crossover hit. Uh, and I'm not suggesting it's cynical, but it's just not necessarily something that appeals to me personally. For me, jazz fusion first half of the 70s. Uh, I still like the influence of jazz in, in other kinds of music, but the actual jazz records themselves, the ECM records probably being the exception, actually. But what's interesting with the ECM records is that a little like Jazz Fusion itself, but in a totally different way, it became more accessible. Because if you listen to a lot of the very, very early ECM albums, there's a lot more... Um, experimental free jazz, free jazz. Yeah. and even Jan Garbrek comes from quite an experimental background is it Afric Pepperbird or... yeah that's a great album yeah but not an easy listen no not at all no no I mean there's definitely you're right there is a sense that even during the 70s ECM find their kind of their sound the mm. the, the, the stereotypical ECM sound but even then I mean they're still throwing out some quite strange records uh, if you look through the catalogue you, you're always surprised oh my god they released that in... and and they shifted because obviously yeah. by the 80s they've started the ECM new series and they're introducing you know Steve Reich Arvo Pett Meredith Monk it's a really interesting but there's some really strange really... records by Carla Blay Michael Mann yes in the that's late true 70s and... Well, actually, and they go against you know we're talking about ECM the received wisdom of the purity of sound mm. recording and the Carla Blay and Michael Mantler albums, they're more experimental, more vibrant and uh, sometimes more tasteless, you know, and in a way I quite like some of those. Yeah. I think there's some great music um, that, that Blay and, and Mantler produced, but of course they were amongst the only artists that I think recorded themselves. Yeah. That weren't produced they? by Manfred. Eichert. Exactly. Yeah. They didn't work in the, uh, in the studio in Oslo. Um, and another one who eventually did that was, was I think, Steve Tibbetts, who's an interesting guitarist who's mm. been on ECM. And his first album, pretty good, but he recorded this with Manfred Eicher. And he was devastated because he had to record this in two days. And he'd previously been experimenting on his own with electric guitars, all sorts of loops and textures. And he'd taken months over it. And he had two days, had to make this album. And it is a good ECM album, in inverted commas. 
And he was so horrified that I think every album he did after that, he just did by himself in his studio okay. in America. So obviously it, it, didn't, it didn't work for everyone, that, that kind of approach, the ECM approach. But. No, I think there was a real restriction in terms mm. of the nature of the sounds and the time you had mm. to record the albums. So other records we've got this year, Brand X, Moroc and Roll. I like Brand X very much. I mean, what a great band. You know, Percy mm. Jones uh, on bass, Phil Collins on drums, Robin Lumley on keyboards. Great British players. They had a very unique sound, isn't it? It's, I mean, this borderline progressive rock, isn't it, really, Brand X? It's kind of halfway between... Well, mind you, you can say that a lot about a lot of jazz fusion, yeah. to be fair. It's, it's halfway between progressive rock and, and jazz music, isn't it, really? Yeah, but it, there's also a connection, again, to Eno, who invented music, as we know, because he was using... Of course he invented music. Invented music. Invented ambient. Invented, he probably invented jazz as well. Well, he know? invented Motorhead. Invented Motorhead, That's invented him. Afrobeat. It was an well. idea he had and he just cast off. Afrobeat. Afrobeat. Eno. Yeah. Reggae. Dub, well, he, did int- he probably introduced Felicuti to David Byrne. We can. <laughs> probably did. Um, but... Went back in his time machine and invented it before <laughs> Felicuti had even thought about it, yeah. Well, he actually wrote The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. As well, yeah. Yeah, it's a pseudonym. Um, but yeah, I think that the Brandix, there's also a connection because I think Eno was using um, Jones and Collins on um, Another film, Green World. Uh, uh, yes, and, and the film music. And the, uh, yeah. obviously music for film and time. Film music, schoolboy era. No, I'm just saying the film music album. I wasn't saying yeah, that's what that you was call, the that's what you title. Said the album. Brian Eno's no, the film music album. I was saying the film music album. I wasn't saying it's called the film music yeah, album. I thought you were. I think that's worse than Lindsay McVie by far. Nothing is as bad as Lindsay McVie. The film music or album late by Brian AC, Eno. ACDC's Late There Be Rock. <laughs> that was a MacBook era. Yeah. No, and London not... Town by The Clash. <laughs> oh, I am imagining God. The Clash doing a dub version of Wings London Town and it's sounding good in my head. We're not editing all these mistakes out, Tim, by the way. You know that. I want I want these mistakes to be well. Yeah, I, I should mention at this point that we we are deciding whether to edit our mistakes out or leave them in, so you can hear what fools we really are. But anyway, as for this album, I think there's also an element of the kind of ambient and groove experiments that Eno was doing. So there's a certain art rock aspect as well as progressive rock. And I suppose yeah, you're right. I mean, both Bruford and Brand X, they were distinctive variants. On the fusion sound, you know, they were not rip-offs of Mahavishnu or Return to Forever or Mwandishi or no, Weather Report. No, very British about at it, all. It? There is, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I actually, I mean, one of my favourite albums is the one where they go completely off the rails, which is Product, where they're recording as two separate bands mm. in at, at different times, isn't it? Mm. And um, it covers a lot of ground, including them delving into R&B at times as well and doing it well. Because, you know, Collins, when he's unfettered, is an amazing drummer. And he has got that kind of lovely soul voice, which he kind of uses in quite an unaffected way at this stage because he's just experimenting. He's not, you know, writing for the 80s chart hits. Rock and Roll is possibly my favourite album of theirs along with Product. Okay. Okay, I really like un- un- Unorthodox Behaviour. The first one is great. And the, yeah. actually the live album, Livestock, is brilliant. Oh, that is really good. That yeah. is, I agree. I mean, they called this album Moroccan and Roll because they felt it was more rock and roll. So, yeah. so they did is that pun? Moroccan Roll, more rock and roll. Yeah, yeah, very there? clever. Below when ELO did Discovery, <laughs> Discovery. <laughs> to be fair, Discovery in yeah. some ways is more subtle. Than more rock and roll? Yeah. Okay, if you say so. 
Yeah, so so this album is supposedly a, a little bit less jazz than the, at least they thought so, a little bit less jazz than the previous record. Yeah, I mean, yes, you're right. I'm just looking at the Wikipedia page now. Yeah, so there's a little bit of wordless vocals sung by Phil Collins in Sanskrit. No, it's not wordless. <laughs> it's just sung in a okay. language that you wouldn't understand unless you were uh, au fait with Sanskrit. Again, it's a, it, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of showboating going on for me. On. It's closer to Weather Report and it's closer to Herbie Hancock in that you don't quite have as many of those tight unison riffs or you well, don't... There's quite a lot of those, yeah. There's some of those. Well, yeah. obviously, I know, you know, you're going to... I think there's more unorthodox behaviour, actually. Yeah, probably. Um, is it Nuclear Burn? No. Yes. Um, yeah. But I think that... For me, there's kind of there's a weightlessness at times. They do have that kind of post in a silent way weightlessness. And what I kind of like about them is that again, this is music that is being made up as it goes along. There's not very much pre-planning. It appears it's a very natural expression. I think there's I think there is comp- you know it's quite a fair bit of composition. I mean, what I was going to say is one of the things that I think distinguishes Brand X perhaps from the American bands. Is, and this is what this is why I ref, refer to the progressive rock thing. You will get this beautiful passages of say string synthesizers coming in and playing these gorgeous kind of chords. Yeah, and that's not something you would really hear on a Weather Report album or a Returns Forever album uh, to me anyway. And there's a lot of that on the record. Roland string synthesizer. When I meant free from yes, you're right, and I love that. There's, a, there's, a, there's acoustic guitar there's sitar yeah. on one track there's True. a lot of overdubbing I think there's a lot of use of the studio and to me that's why this is borderline progressive rock well, when I'm saying making it up and going long it almost has that spirit that we're saying you know the late 60s early 70s bands when they were just making music as such they were just all in a room together playing with the possibilities of music there's no sense of we're going in to make this type of an album sure but that's the, that's where the jazz kind of the jazz mentality comes in here i suppose and it is you know it is definitely fusion music but i would say for me it's it's progressive jazz there's the fusion mm. i mean just i'm just looking at the wikipedia page listen this is the list of instruments used on the record fender rhodes acoustic piano mini moog arp odyssey roland string synthesizer clavinet pulsar space echo auto harp acoustic guitar electric guitar sitar fender bass marimba drums percussion that is not the list of instruments you would see on an American jazz record. No. That's a list of instruments by a British band that are kind of inspired by the American jazz bands, but they're kind of approaching the record almost like a progressive rock band would make a record. Let's overdub a marimba part here. Let's have a sitar on this track. Mm. Let's have a beautifully lyrical sort of interlude of string synthesizer. But you feel it's a very creative and fluid process. The albums kind of sound like that at that stage. Yeah. They sound like it. And it was interesting because they sort of started off, didn't they? They were going to get signed to Ireland. I think it's part of the reason why they were working with Brian Eno that Richard Williams was going to sign them to Ireland and their original material I think was much closer to a tighter average white band style funk oh really I did did not know that I mean I don't hear that I mean they've got some great grooves on this record you know Mm. but it's funny you know Phil Collins is just instantly recognisable isn't he yeah in this context uh, you couldn't be anyone else and when you put him together with a similarly you could say the same of Percy Jones the bass player He's he's definitely got a lot of Jacko in his playing, but mm-hmm. there's something very distinctively his own too, isn't there? His his kind of um, harmonic language is even more unpredictable in a way. There are times when he's using the bass almost like a percussion instrument. 
Yeah. And I think that's something that Mick obviously took <clears throat> on board later on. In well, his I think along life. with, you know, Weber and um, Pistorius, he is one of the great mm. players and certainly great fretless players. And I think his background is is quite unusual. I think he was in kind of more conventional Merseybeat bands in the 60s. I think he actually comes from quite a conventional pop rock background. So I'm not quite sure how he developed such a style and and in that way. You know, he's not your standard session bass player. He's not your standard anything. And of course, they, you know, they had, um, I think Giblin was superb as well, who also Mm. worked alongside him on product. I think they're both on that album. And Giblin obviously did a lot of work with uh, with John Martin as well. But yeah, Jones should be so so much better known. I think he's de- he's definitely he's an innovator in the use of harmonics on the bass as well, which is, again is something Mick used to do a lot mm. and sliding harmonics, uh, which is not something I, I I've heard a lot outside of his playing. And also these things where he would literally pull the strings off the fretboard, you know, and create these kind of weird percussive, almost elastic band-like sounds, but all kind of integrated into the groove. So very eccentric kind of bass lines sometimes. Yeah. And I think that rhythm section, which, of course, Brian Eno loved so much himself, you know, Mm. on his album Film Music, that album Film Music. Do you know that album, Film Music? Yeah. Yeah. That one. That one, yeah. The film music. The film music. Brian Eno's The Film Music. <laughs> Brian Eno's The Film Music. Produced by Lindsay McVie, I remember Lindsay well, McVie, yeah. yeah, yeah. Came out the same time as The Clash's London Town. You can see why Eno would have been so attracted to using oh, that, that, God, that yeah. rhythm section. It is. All right, I'm glad you agree with me. <laughs> I'm glad no, you agree. I had, I had <laughs> a train of thought. You know that right. when you get to worry, I had a train of thought. Right. And I went completely blank <laughs> okay. on this train it of happens. thought. It happens. Listen, we've been talking for six hours about 1977 already. And, and it was about Percy Jones. Oh, my God. It was such an insight. Were you going to dazzle It would have blown with... your mind. It would have been like Van Morrison's debut album, Blowing Your Mind. Blowing Your Mind. You'd have blown your mind. You'd have blown your nose. You'd have been dazzled. Well, maybe if, it, if you remember what it is, we can come back to it. But in the meantime, let's just talk about the last couple of entries because we're finally, we're getting to the, we're in the home straight now. It might have been even about Brian Eno, the film music. It could have even been about that. Okay. Well, if you have any more anecdotes about the film music, yeah. we'd all love to hear them. Okay. Just, let's just wrap up with the, 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 the we're in the home straight now. We can see the finishing line now. We can see the finishing line, 1977. I can hear in my mind. I don't know about you. What? I can hear Chariots of Fire, the theme in my head. That's a nice callback to Vangelis, who we talked about earlier. Yeah, there was some. There's something earlier when you mentioned. Oh, that's right. You kept talking about. Um, that's what you were talking about how your son listened to the Beatles and Kraftwerk's Man Machine endlessly and endlessly yeah. and endlessly. And I thought that's really clever, because the first track on Trans Europe Express is called Europe Endless, <gasps> and I thought that was a reference. I thought Tim's being really clever there. Were yes, you? of Were course. You? That was a deli- that was deliberate, that was deliberate, wasn't it? Of course, it was, it was deliberate. deliberate. Yeah. This podcast is so layered. There are layers. There are callbacks. There are there are jokes that you have to listen to the whole pod- podcast to, to hear the punchline because that we just set it's all just one <laughs> big setup. Also, this year we have an album by Shakti, which is John McLaughlin's uh, sort of jazz Indian fusion project. Now, he wasn't the first person to kind of combine the two things. I think there was a British jazz musician in the late 60s called Joe Harriet who made some very impressive sort of fusions of jazz and Indian music. But I think the difference here is that John McLaughlin was working exclusively within the context of a band where all the other musicians in the band were genuine Indian musicians. So this is the third Shakti album that came out this year called Natural Elements. I mean, what, what's your take on the, the sound of 
Shakti, Tim? Does it work for you? I mean, it's very distinctive. It's brilliantly executed. It wasn't really anything I could listen to in a concentrated way. You know, I, I, I liked it. And that was probably about as enthusiastic as I got. You know, I can see it's brilliant. Does it work as a fusion for you? The fusion of Indian yeah, jazz? Yeah, no, I, I think it does work yeah. as a fusion for sure. I think it's, it's, uh, it is interesting and it is heartfelt and the results are great. And I can see how it's a kind of guitar player's paradise in particular, you know. I mean, this was the, kind of the first thing that McLaughlin did after breaking up Mahavishnu Orchestra. Yeah. So he's definitely trying something different here, uh, you know, to work with musicians. Having worked with within a band where, well, famously, the Mahavishnu Orchestra, all five members were from different uh, countries, weren't they? Mm. But none of them were Indian. So he's kind of, uh, you know, going off and working in a, within a, com- a context of a completely different culture in a way, you know. Indian, oh, he's Indian. still questing. I mean, you know, the still thing I, I, yeah. I really like, and it's like... Um you know, his work with, with Santana as well. I love the fact that they are reaching for eternity with every guitar solo. And there is something in McLaughlin during that, the spiritual McLaughlin, um, that I do like, you know, that whole love, devotion, surrender, attempting to lose yourself. It's that Coltrane in, thing, isn't it? Yeah. Very, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Reaching it is the Coltrane. For spiritual sort of, you know, transcendence in a way. Um, I mean, I, you know, I think McLaughlin is incredible. One of the things that, that um, is unfortunate in a way is that very often he's sort of, uh, he's name checked as one of the people that kind of invented the notion of shredding mm. because he was an incredible player that could play very, very fast. You know, there's kind of sheets of sound, which mm. again, something comes maybe perhaps a little bit starts with Coltrane, this idea of these very, very fast technical runs. And you hear that in the Mahavishnu record, certainly, and you hear that here too. Some of the playing on the Shakti albums is ridiculously fast. And, and the unison stuff he's doing with the percussion players, the tabla players, it's, it's technically, it's just off the scale. But I think it's a little bit unfair on him because McLaughlin also also always even when he was playing fast and he could play Mm. beautifully and lyrically and slow as well but when he was playing fast it had a danger and an edge and a visceral quality to it Mm. it wasn't that smug do you know what i mean by i do yeah the the modern generation of shredder players that smug what you're getting into here is grinning motherfucker territory. Oh, grinning more. motherfuckers, yeah. And YouTube YouTube heroes. McLaughlin is clearly coming from a, a place of investigation. Yes. That's what it's about. It's investigation. It's expression. This isn't somebody who wants to show you how good they are. They want to touch the hand of God. That is what he's yeah. trying to do. Yeah. Whereas I think that the grinning motherfucker wants you to praise them he wants you to as be they show their ability impressed by his ability to play the guitar as if it was an olympic event yeah it's a bit like wanting yeah. your mother to pat you on your head yeah and i don't think mclaughlin wants that i i mclaughlin wants to explode into the cosmos yeah you're right mclaughlin is reaching for something uh with with the kind of speedy playing he's reaching for some kind of incendiary uh, overwhelming spiritual experience yeah Whereas, as you say, the shred, the most of the modern generation of shred. I mean, obviously there are a few exceptions, you know, but but we're talking generally here about the mm. YouTube warriors, the ones that go on YouTube and sort of basically try and dazzle you with their speed. Who fucking cares? <laughs> go and write some decent music, then we'll be <laughs> impressed, you know. So, Shakti definitely has an element of that of that shredding stuff too, but it's also very lyrical in places too. I quite like it. I feel like I've got one record. I've got them all. Yeah. 
and I have got one record. <laughs> now I mentioned it. I've got one Shakti record. And I really like it. And I love McLaughlin. I, you know, anything McLaughlin does, as you say, would be worth investigation. Now, talking of the influence of, of Indian, Indian music on American jazz, uh, Alice Coltrane. Uh, I know I love, we, we both adore mm-hmm. Alice Coltrane. She made a couple of her sort of later 70s albums here, which start to flirt a bit more with bringing other styles into the... Mm-hmm the jazz bubble, if you like, which is always admirable. She signed to Warner Brothers around this time and made slightly more, I feel slightly more, com- a few slightly more compromised records, but they're still mad. They're still yeah. a bit mad. But there's also, you know, again, the the appropriation of, of certainly a sort of element of Hindu spiritualism mm-hmm. in the music. It becomes so dominant, doesn't it? It becomes so dominant, the titles, the imagery, the sound, yeah. the the chanting that she has on, on, on the records. It's difficult. If the music's good enough, it doesn't really get in the way for me. Um, and these Alice Coltrane albums, you know, the late 70s ones, when she does sign to the major, which is unusual in itself, they're good. You know, they're not weak Alice Coltrane albums. They're consistently good. Maybe they sound slightly cleaner and there are a few influences that haven't necessarily appeared on earlier albums um but i like them i i'm not sure i'm necessarily aware i almost kind of ignore you know i i erase it mm. from my mind in, in I, a sense. I think it's very sincere obviously isn't it in the play in the in the case yeah. of glocklin and, and and it's and very important to me. you know this is you know when I, as i say that i realize how potentially disrespectful it is in that for McLaughlin and Coltrane spirituality and their religious beliefs were incredibly important to them and you can get swept away with that as a listener can't you, you can kind of get swept yeah. away with that I mean I've, I have a, it, it's a very different musical genre but I have a similar experience when I listen to Arvo Pert's music mm-hmm. and he's obviously deeply deeply religious and all of the music is infused with his deep deep faith and belief yeah. And you do feel it. It's a bit like when you go to a church. I mean, I'm I'm very much an atheist, mm-hmm. but I love the feeling yeah. that that kind of air that's trapped inside the church feels somehow I'm different. It's still incredible. I mean, I still go to occasional church services while not being a believer because mm. I love the architecture of mm. churches and cathedrals and the sound of sound, a good yeah. church organ with choir is still astonishing. But also that it's almost like the air that's inside the church feels slightly different. It's slightly charged. It's got a different kind of energy yeah, to the yeah. air outside. So, I mean, I'm, I'm digressing here slightly, but this is, this is kind of what I mean by it's very easy. Even if you're not religious, you can get swept up in that passion and that spiritualism and <clears throat> well the religions and, uh, sorry i was going to say the uh, almost the the pageantry as well and the rituals i think in certain i have that also some of van well. morrison's albums as where you can kind of hear the the passion and the spirituality i mean yeah. van, van famously went through about 10 religions across the course <laughs> of 10 albums but you know i don't doubt for one minute that he wasn't sincere uh, yeah. when he was singing about Scientology one minute or, you know, or Catholicism the next minute or whatever mm. it was, Christianity the next minute. And you can again, even if you don't believe, you kind of get swept up in it and it feels like there's um, a different energy to the music. I, and I think, you know, again, we've mentioned it before, but 
Love Supreme by Coltrane is one of yeah. the ultimates in that. And I think it is all about... Well, that's the archetype. Yeah, ...giving me. yourself. I yeah. think it's that sense of surrender. And I think that's what I'm attracted to. Like you, I'm profoundly sceptical and cynical when it comes to organised religion or even niche religions and cults. But I love that sense of almost losing your consciousness in mm. something greater than you are. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And if you feel that the musician is, is kind of attaining that level, yeah, you definitely do feel it and you respond to it, whether you believe or not. But and what, what I also like about the Ellis Coltrane music at this time particularly is it is jazz abstracting into all sorts of other areas. It's like, we're not being purist here. Mm. Yeah, let's have some gospel. Yeah. Let, let's have some Indian, you know, musicians come in and play. Let's have a choir. Let's have a string arrangement. You know, all in the kind of nature of this very devotional music. But it's barely jazz anymore. And probably for that reason was very hard to market. I'm sure, you know, these records, Alice Coltrane records were, were pretty much overlooked until yeah. relatively recently. <laughs> but then you wonder, how did they get the contracts in the first place? Yeah, I know. And she definitely has carved out a very, very unique place for her in, in, the, in the sort of jazz, you know, world. Yeah, and, and has as distinctive a voice as John Coltrane. Yes, absolutely. Um, Is there always a bit of chauvinism, perhaps, at the time that she was a woman, so she couldn't possibly be on the same level? I don't know whether it was chauvinism. I think that there was always a cult of... Coltrane, I think Coltrane was seen as something very special from the 50s onwards. So I think that, you know, a bit like Charlie Parker, I think, she, you know, had she been married to Pharaoh Sanders, I don't think you'd necessarily have had her being dismissed as much. And Pharaoh Sanders' work is great. Yeah, there's... The 70s a... as well. I think Coltrane, it's a bit like with Miles Davis. Yeah. These are figures that are not just musicians, they are beyond musicians. You know, Django Reinhardt in the guitar world, think of his impact in the 30s, 40s. It must have been hard to be, in terms of trying to make a name for yourself and to be considered... It must have mm. been hard to be John Coltrane's widow. Uh, yes, yeah. I think that's true. And I think Yoko Ono has this because, again, had yeah. Yoko Ono not been married to John Lennon yes, and she made those 70s albums, they'd be cult classics. Yeah, well, they are, in my view. They, they are, are now. Classics, they are now. Yeah. But I'd say even the, I think she'd have made that without the Lennon connection. And unfortunately, because of the Lennon connection there's been a patronising view of some of her creative and output. And she'd be very respected as a, as a, as a, you know, a modern artist, uh, mm. you know, all those things. So, yes, you're right. And in a sense, I think you... Certainly Yoko, I think, has embraced that. She embraced the idea that she is John Lennon's mm. widow and she will always be John Lennon's widow. Um, and to be fair, she was, she was very passionate in preserving her husband's legacy too. Yes, yeah. Right, Tim, let's... Uh, a couple of other albums you've got here. Don Cherry's Don Cherry in Here and Now and All Net Comments really good, Dancing yeah. in Here. Do you want to talk about those? I don't know those records. Um, well, Don Cherry made some great records in the he 70s. Did. Again, he was kind of combining you I know, don't know these ones. Free jazz, textures, soul, groove. Um, the Ornette Coleman one, I do know really quite well. This is the one of the ones where he's initially experimenting, probably with kind of elements of Afrobeat and funk. So it's one of the more accessible Ornette Coleman albums um and i think it's an underrated period i've never been that much fun i can see why it's influential i can see why it's good but his very very early 60s work just leaves me cold it's just not something that 
particularly touches me. Whereas when he starts to use technology and groove, you know, you've heard the 80s funk albums that he made. And he even works with Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead on um, some of his work. I actually really like those, these kind of impure funk Ornette Coleman albums. And he's doing it in an unusual time, you know, um, whereas a lot of artists from his generation, one of the things I didn't like about jazz in the 80s was that you had that kind of Winton Marsalis influence where it was like in a silent way in Bitches Brew never happened. It was almost like jazz retreated into a kind of formal 50s, early 60s mm. style. And what I liked is that Ornette Coleman, who could have been one of the grand old men of jazz at that point and performing acoustic jazz, which is more fashionable, was getting more electronic and more funked up. And uh, I remember seeing Ornette Coleman in the 80s and... It was a bit like Falakuti, a bit like James Brown. It was absolutely relentless. Sounds really good. I, I want to check this album out, actually. Okay, Tim, let's draw a line and say that is 1977 in a nutshell. I don't know mm. if you can say, I don't know if you can use the term in a nutshell after you've just talked about a year for like seven hours or something, but. In a nutshell, that was mm -hmm. 1977, folks, and or our perspective on it. Tim, is it possible for all these albums we've discussed, 1977, for you to just land on one as your favourite of the year and the one that you feel has potentially been the most influential going forward from 1977? Is it even possible after all these albums we've discussed? I'll tell you what, you can have, you can have as many as you like, <laughs> but obviously within reason. Yeah. Well, no, let's say... Pick three albums that you would choose to take to a desert island from this year. Well, it's all about what is ultimately the influence in the future. And I think we've said that I Feel Love, the single, maybe is the single most influential track mm. from this year in that it influences the disco of the late 70s, the electronics of the early 80s, the chill out of the 90s, and the R&B of the present day, the 2020s. This is something whose influence has never really diminished. So I think that Donna Summer's I Feel Love has got to be up there as one of the most influential because when you actually think of the albums that are seen in retrospect as defining 77, um, never mind the bollocks yes. and so on, I don't think they have had much of an influence on music to come. Particularly, oh, I, th I think they're pretty standard rock albums. In fact, the only influence was when I was driving here to see you, there was a van and it had in the logo of Nevermind the Bollocks, Nevermind the Bifolds, Try the Books. Now, of course, for, for a Sex Pistols audience, it probably now should be Nevermind the Bifocals, let's face it. So but what you're saying is had more of an influence on advertising. On advertising and graphic design. I, th I think that's a little bit unfair. Yeah. But... I will agree with you that I think on balance, you would have to say I Feel Love and probably Trans Europe Express, Kraftwerk album, yeah. have had more of a long-term influence on popular music than punk did. Punk perhaps more in a sort of um, yeah. an attitude and an approach, but musically speaking, yes, you're right. Ultimately, it was fairly conservative. If you took John Johnny Rotten's voice away, you'd have a pretty conservative Yeah, I mean, rock I, as I said, I really like public image 
limited and i really like what the clash became but so that's it's not, what not we're talking about we're talking about you know 70, yeah yeah the 1977 it just you know didn't do it for me then doesn't do it for me now i mean obviously we've missed out pacific ocean blue has been one of the most influential albums of 1977 we gave that a real trashing didn't we do we feel a bit guilty about that i feel a bit guilty i feel awful because you know one of the reasons for doing the show was to actually give back to music what music had given to me so it's to express enthusiasm i try and express my enthusiastic embrace of music rather than my criticism it's not nice being negative i know what you mean it's not nice being negative but part of being a music nerd is also about being sometimes um the, the sort of person that will stand up and say you know that album that everyone else says is amazing and a lost masterpiece mm-hmm. I'm going to be the guy, the Emperor's New Clothes. I'm going to be the guy that's going to stand up and say the Emperor's got no clothes on. I think sometimes that's also part of it, isn't it? I, I think it's so. Not, it's not a bad record. It's it's a good record. It's just not as great as its reputation would. I think that's kind of what we're saying. I, th- I think what it is that obviously certain albums, I mean, yeah, we were listening to them earlier. That, you know, something like Pacific Ocean Blue, bizarrely to us, has this reputation amongst the 70 greatest albums of all time or what have you. Whereas... A Beach Boys album like L.A., the light album, is considered one of the monstrosities of Western culture. I'd put that above. Yeah, me too. And an album Pacific like Ocean and an Bill. album like Don Juan's Reckless Daughter by Joni exactly. Mitchell, which yes. is really overlooked in her case, is in to me is infinitely superior. Tim, give us a shout out for some of your favourite albums of the year. There are so 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 many. Um, I'm going to get. Can I guess for you? Yeah, go on, please. John do. Martin, One World. That was going to be in my top two or three, yes. The Bowser, Low. It's really tough between Heroes and Low. Okay, The Bowser, Low and Heroes. Low, Yeah, Low probably, because I think one of the things, we didn't really discuss Low properly, but Low, I think, is one of those albums that sets the template for 80s sound, because it has that kind of... Um, very early example of overprocessed, almost gated drums without cymbals. It has that sound that becomes the eighties. There's so much about it that 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 was became a template for for me. I think one of the reasons we didn't discuss it is because those albums have been pretty well discussed. Yeah, uh, by many other commentators more articulate than us. They're amazing records, and you know they 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 are so influential. I mean, with Heroes, one of the things I love is that um, is it the Adam and Joe cartoon. If you've seen this of the oh, making yeah. for Tony Visconti, <laughs> and I love this because Tony Visconti is the producer, but Brian yeah. Eno gets the gets credit. the credit for being the producer. And he's like, hello, Tony Visconti producer yeah which i quite like um i think they're both phenomenal albums and yes um probably low has the edge so yeah one world and low i'm gonna guess another one the ham over i think that was an album that was incredibly important to me for a very long time it's less important to me now though i'm still drawn to things like you know on tuesday she used to do yoga and so on i still think it's um it, well it's such an intensely yeah. personal work as well it's the ham um so in some ways that might be the most important album to be but not necessarily my personal favorite maybe you just overdosed on it too i think you're right yeah I, th- I think this is part of the problem i think when you overdose on music during certain periods in your life, you almost feel you have to outgrow them because the influence is so strong. Mm. And I certainly know that, you know, when I first started off singing, and it's very odd given how I sing and have done ever since No Man 
you know, Hamill and his intensity and his rage was a very big influence. You definitely had a strong element of that when I first met you. Yeah. You know? And I think this is the thing that basically you have to outgrow something that has mm. such a strong influence on you. Um, but it, it's very difficult because, you know, going for the one, my, my almost equal favourite Yes album, lovely record. Don Juan would probably be in my top okay. three or four. I, th- I think that is a glorious record Domino's Reckless Daughter so I'm going to go I think we agree on the most influential I'm going to go with I Feel Love and, and the Craftwork album as most influential in the long term my favourite records Pink Floyd fanboy Gotta Say Animals it's one of my top three Floyd albums it's a masterpiece oh love damn it, it. now I love that love it um, Electric Light Orchestra's Out of the Blue what a stunning double album chock a block with beautifully symphonic pop uh, Godly and Cream's Consequences, The Folly. I absolutely adore it. And, you know, part of it, of course, is the fact that you, you become an evangelist for an album that a lot of people just think is a piece of junk. Yeah. It's what you were saying earlier, you know, about the, the, the kind of inverse in the way of the, of the, the Dennis Wilson album, you know. Um, you feel like you have to be the, the person to stand up and give the opposite perspective, you know. Mm. A lot of people say Consequences. I think it's a work of mad genius, and uh, I will defend it until Kingdom. I come. completely agree. Yeah, good, good. Um, yeah, no animals. I'd certainly have to put in my top. In, 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 at the moment, I've got about ten albums in my top three yeah, of nineteen seventy-seven. Yeah, I mean, I love One World, Roy Harper's album, Bullying Among Vars from this year. I love that record. Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. I have to, you know, I grew up hearing it. Uh, over and over again my mum playing it all the time I still think it's got some of the greatest pop music ever made on it mostly the Bee Gees tracks just remarkable record Abba's the album Donna Summers Once Upon a Time there's so many isn't there Um, if I had to pick just one I probably would would end up taking the the Godly and Cream because it's it's a long album Mm -hmm. and uh, it's got the Peter Cook sketches on it which I I you know I always I never get tired of hearing those things and it's got so much detail in it that I think you can never get bored listening to it because you will always hear something yeah. new every time you listen. I think if I had to choose one, maybe I'd go for One World because there's a great variety in it. It's not quite got the lyrical depth, I think, but for Small Hours alone, which I could listen to endlessly. If Small Hours took up the whole of a side of a record I would be very happy if it took up a whole record I could just <laughs> listen to Small Hours for 40 minutes it would probably be one of my yeah. favourite albums of all time yeah yeah well great okay Tim I think finally we'll put the full stop uh, there on 1977 what an absolute epic that was four episodes we've been talking for eight hours by the time the listeners hear it that might have been edited down a fair bit although we're going to try try something a bit different here we're going to try not to edit so much aren't we uh, this time around. Famous last words and all that. Yeah. I mean, um, I think we should edit it into eight episodes, have an entire series of I it. think we should just edit out all the mistakes you made and just present them. Separate episode, just Tim's schoolboy errors. Bonus Patreon feature. I had driven a couple of hours and then I was doing this podcast. If you've had a good night's sleep tonight. We'll I was exhausted. Yeah. That was the excuse. London Town it today? Is the What's the excuse for London Town? The Clashes album London Town. There's no excuse for that. You've had a good night's sleep. Well, it, it could be the beginnings of senility. What I would say is people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. I'm quite capable of making terrible, terrible schoolboy what was my one the film well, music. one of them yeah well that the wasn't really brian you know the film no music. that wasn't really an error what i was trying to say there was the th- the album that brian made of his film music 
That's what I'm trying you said, to say. The album, Brian Eno, the film music. No, I wasn't. I wasn't trying to say that. By... And you talked about Marillion Seconds Out as well. You made that terrible. What are you mistake. talking about? You're just making stuff up now. You're just making it up. Well, I liked it when you were talking about Radiohead in another episode. You were referring to Tim York and Jimmy Greenwood. <laughs> You're just making it up now. You're just trying to make me look bad because you've embarrassed yourself with your schoolboy errors. Anyway... I'm quite capable of making my own schoolboy errors. Thank you very much. In fact, isn't there a few that we've let out into the world and people have picked up, picked up on them? What was Mostly one? yours. I think. Mostly mine, yeah. yeah. There was something I did, wasn't there? And, and somebody picked up on it. Uh, and and, and you, hadn't, you hadn't spotted it either. And we, it went out with this terrible schoolboy error. And I forget what it was now. It's been a long time since we've been doing this. And as you say, senility is setting in. Anyway, for goodness sake, Let's shut this down. 1977, we will be back with another year soon. I hope you've enjoyed 1977. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you again soon. Goodbye from me and goodbye from Tim. Bye-bye. Two Ronnie's sign-off, isn't it? <laughs> it is. <laughs>